I'd like to read this morning Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it this morning. It's been read in a language that we understand, and we come to you now and ask for you to give us more than human understanding. Father, we need spiritual understanding. So would you, through the preaching of the word and through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, would you teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us, encourage us, strengthen us. Father, do your work in us to make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. Lord, protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the summer of 1998, the country was captivated by a race. Not maybe the race you're thinking about, but the race to break the Major League Baseball single season home run record. Anybody remember that? Roger Maris's record of 61 home runs in one season had held since 1961. But now there were two sluggers in particular. There was Mark McGuire of the best team in baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals, and Sammy Sosa of that other team from the north side of Chicago, uh, the Cubs. Uh, and they were in a battle to break it. And all summer we were captivated watching them to see if they were gonna break this record. Well, Mark McGuire won the race, thus the Cardinals did as well. But he hit home run 62 three weeks before the season ended. And he finished the season with a new single season record of 70, which held up for a few years until Barry Bonds broke it if you came here this morning for baseball trivia. But it wasn't just the home run race that captivated the country. There was also this discussion going on about the value of the baseballs themselves. Fans were paying huge markups on tickets so that they could sit in the outfield seats where these two guys most often hit their home runs. They hoped to catch a record-setting home run ball, and they were even more hopeful to cash it in for lots and lots of money. It was a dream, and that dream became reality for a man named Philip, or Phil Ozerski. He actually caught Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball, and he sold it later that winter in an auction. If you didn't know, he got a little more than $3 million for that baseball. 
$3 million. Phil was a lucky guy, if I can use that word. But to me, Phil was more than a lucky guy. He was my friend. And he was a coworker at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, where I worked. In fact, the day after he caught the ball, he brought it to work to show it to all of us. Because that's what you do. Take it to show it to your buddies. Instead of telling them a fishing story, you show them the fish. We listened that morning to sports pundits on the radio. And they were talking about this guy has to have this ball somewhere, like in a safe deposit box or a safe. But no, we were tossing it around the lab, having fun, taking pictures. I have a picture to prove it. You can see it afterwards. Me and Phil holding ball number 70. It's even dated, 928, 20, or, uh, 98. So hey, it's proof. Not just telling you a fishing story. Think about it for a minute. We knew what that ball was worth. And not three million, but we knew it was worth a lot. It was a treasure. It actually belonged probably in Cooperstown in the Hall of Fame. But what did we do? We trivialized it. We threw it around like kids on a sandlot. Today we're concluding our summer series on identity. We're seeking to give the final part to this age-old question, who am I? Who am I? And as I think about that and come to the end, I'm struck by just how prone we are to trivialize things of value. I don't wanna talk anymore about sports memorabilia. Maybe after you can talk to me. I don't necessarily just wanna talk about whatever other earthly thing that might have a lot of value to us. Instead, this morning, I want to address how we trivialize something of even greater value. I want to talk about how we trivialize the great inheritance that we have in heaven as children of God. Look in your bulletins. Look what we've already heard read this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. It's printed there in your words of assurance. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in our adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Is that not worth more than three million, three million dollar baseballs? Is it not? Of course it's worth more. The answer must be, of course. But if you're anything like me, I don't, I don't often live like that. I often live as though I have forgotten just how valuable my inheritance in Christ is. Instead of finding value and significance and all that God is for me as my father, I seek to find that value. I seek to find that significance in anything else, whether it be a relationship, a thing, a dream, whatever it is, that's where I look to. And when I do that, what do I do? What do I end up doing? I end up trivializing the value of all the spiritual blessings that are mine in Jesus Christ. Am I alone in this? Am I the only one? You don't have to nod your head, but I'm sure that I'm not. In the passage before us, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, the apostle Paul is in the business again of reorientation. He's reorienting believers to the value of their adoption as God's children. And to do this, he points his readers, he actually points you and I, even today, to past 
present and future realities. So I want us to begin first this morning with past reality. I know many of you like to take notes, so you can put this down as our first point this morning. Past reality. Paul highlights our past reality down in verse 7. And he, he, he highlights it when he says this, you are no longer a slave. He says, you are no longer a slave. To help us understand exactly what he's saying, let's go back to verses one through three. Let's read those. I want those to be fresh on our mind even now. So chapter four, one through three, just turn your eyes up there. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness, okay? So there's this phrase that comes before the adversative conjunction. He makes this statement. And this statement actually goes back to 329. You're like, Pastor Dan, why don't you just have us read the whole book? Okay, well, maybe. Go back to 329. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's saying that if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Then we saw there in 4.1, he turns to a main theme of the book of Galatians. And if you've studied the entirety of the book of Galatians, you know this to be one of the main themes. And that's the role of the law in the life of the Christian, right? He returns to that theme by way of an illustration, I love it when the biblical writers give an illustration because I don't have to go and look for one and pray over one. There's one right here in the text for us. He talks about a child. You see, a child might be an heir to a great estate, right? He might be heir to something big and wonderful. Paul's making this point. But until he is of age, the estate remains but a promise, not an experience, a promise, not an experience. During his childhood, although he is Lord of the estate by title, he is in Paul's words here, look what Paul says, no different than a slave or a servant. He is put under guardians and managers, Paul says, until the date set by his father. These guardians and managers order him about, they direct him, they discipline him, things you can see back in chapters two and three in Galatians. He's under restraint He has no true liberty because he is the heir. He is, in fact, the Lord. But while he is still a child, he's no different than the servant or the slave in the house. So then Paul takes this illustration and he applies it in verse 3. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. By saying when we were children, he's referring to our past. He's not actually talking about when we were actual little kids. He's referring to the prior time, okay? The prior time, the time before Christ came into the world, or maybe even now, the time before we are born again in Christ, okay? In that past, we were enslaved to what Paul calls elementary principles. Okay, what are those? (laughs) What's he talking about? Well, it refers to many things, and I'll spare you all the details, but commentators like to fight over this. I'll summarize briefly and then summarize it again for you. It refers to many things. First, it can refer to the law, not the moral law, but the law, 
Okay, not the Ten Commandments, but to the ceremonial laws of Israel, laws regarding worship, laws regarding cleanliness. If you don't know what those are, stick around. When we go back to Exodus, guess what we're going to spend a lot of time looking at? Laws, ceremonial laws, and how those point to Christ. But those laws pointed to Christ. They were fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so it can refer to that. It can also refer to all the other laws, the additions to the law that were made over time by all the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the leaders, all those extra laws. Okay, well, we know we have to do this, but here's a 50 ways you can do that, right? Five ways to be a better worshiper in Israel. Oh, 50 ways. Now, 250 ways. Kind of sounds familiar today, doesn't it? Lots of self-help stuff, but there was a lot of that. So it can also refer to those, to the law, but also the extra laws that were there. Elementary principles can also refer to the false gods of the Gentiles, which is certainly applicable to a church that he's writing to in Galatia, right? And these elementary principles, you may have already had this going through your head, it's centered around the basic elements of this world, right? Gods that ruled and reigned over the earth, over the wind, over the water, and over the fire, okay? You can refer to any of those. Religions have rules. Even those false religions of the Gentiles had rules. So let me summarize it again in this way. We could say that elementary principles are any rule or any regulation that people use in an attempt by their own efforts to achieve salvation. Any rule or any regulation that people try to use by their own, right, by their own strength, by their own efforts to achieve salvation. How do we know that? It's the thrust of the whole book. Anything that you do cannot save you. By works of the law will no one be justified. If you think your salvation is in your own hands, Paul says, then you don't know the true gospel. You don't know the gospel. Thinking back of what it means for us today as we sit here in the new covenant era after Christ has come living on this side of the cross, we get confused here a lot, don't we? But Paul's not saying that the law is bad. Paul never says that the law is bad. The problem is that our great enemy Satan has taken the law and twisted it twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to what? To enslave us. Just as during a child's life, his guardian might mistreat him, might even tyrannize him in ways which his father never intended. So the devil has exploited God's good law and God's good creation in order to tyrannize us in ways God never intended. John Stott writing on this passage, I think says this well. He said, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive us to Christ, amen? The law was intended to reveal our sinfulness and drive us to Christ, to a need for the Savior, right? But Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive us to despair. He goes on to say, God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty, God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. But Satan, he says, uses it as a cul-de-sac, trying to deceive us 
into supposing that from its fearful bondage, there is no escape. Satan takes the law, which is good, which shows us our need for a savior, teaches us how to live in order to glorify him. And he warps it. And we take it and we use it. Remember what's going on here. There are people going from church to church saying that unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. They called themselves the circumcision party. That's interesting, isn't it? We know a lot about political parties. Imagine that party. We get a, a letter, the circumcision party would like to speak at your gathering. Unless you do this, you can't be saved. Unless you do this, you can't be saved. What does that produce? Shackles. It produces bondage. We still live that way, don't we? We still live according to the elementary principles of the world. Listen, it's good that we honor God, that we obey his word. The moral law, right, is still for us, right? The moral law is still for us. The Old Testament law, ceremonial and civil are still good. They point us to Jesus. They show us our need for a savior, right? They teach us how to live. But we've been set free from earning, from expressing faith by keeping the law that way. How do we express faith today? We believe. Jesus fulfilled the law. And he went to the cross and gave us his righteousness. So to free men from their bondage to these elementary principles, to help them grow up in every way, that's what God did. He did something amazing. Something Paul makes very clear in verses four and five. You gotta pay attention to those but God phrases. But God sent Jesus to redeem us from that bondage so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the present reality. It's also our second point for you note takers this morning. Our second point, present reality. To set us free from our bondage, to set us free from our slavery, God sent Jesus, the eternal son, the second person of the divine trinity. God the father sent Jesus to come and to take on flesh for us. Paul notes that Jesus was born under the law. What does that mean? It means Jesus came in the time of the law. Jesus came born under the law. But Jesus could do what none of us can do. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus kept the law. Let us not forget the active obedience of Jesus. He not only willingly submitted himself to death on the cross, but he actively lived a righteous life. He fulfilled the law. He could only do that because he's the eternal son of God. And he takes on flesh to stand in our place to do that for us. He kept it to his death. And there on the cross, he also did something that none of us could do. The wages of sin is what? Death. He bore the penalty as well. We talk about this every week, but it still takes my breath away and I hope it does yours too. The perfect son of God took on flesh, became like us in every way, yet without sin, fully fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and took it there to the cross and became sin for us. So I'll take on the punishment. I'll exhaust God's wrath towards sin. I'll do this because they can't do it. They can't keep the law, nor can they pay the penalty, nor can they exhaust the penalty and yet live with you. 
And so Jesus comes and he willingly does that. There on the cross, Paul says, he became a curse for us. He took our sins upon his shoulders and he died in our place. And when we think about what that means, it means that we're justified. In other words, we might say we're righteous-fied. We're set free from the law of sin and death. And we are now, as Paul says, and this is the key phrase in this passage, it's the center of the passage, we're adopted as sons. We are adopted as sons. Please don't miss this. Each and every person here is a son of God. All of us who are in Christ Jesus, if you believe in him and you consider yourselves a Christian, you are a son of God. And a little more than half of you are like, what? What are you talking about? Pastor Dan, are you using those gender bending words again? I'm not. This is true and clear biblical reality. In the ancient world, sons were the heirs. Except in extraneous circumstances, the son was the heir. They received the father's property and the father's privileges. Paul's not diminishing the worth of women here by calling them sons. Instead, he's elevating women. He's putting men and women on equal footing with regard to the benefits of salvation. In fact, and we're gonna go back again, look at 328. He's just explaining what he already said. In 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To be called a son of someone is a great honor. To be called a son of God is an honor that we just can't describe. That's our present reality. We've been adopted by the Father as his children. God sent his son not only that we would be delivered from the greatest evil, but that we might also be crowned with the choicest blessings. A blessing that is sealed on our hearts because he sent his spirit as well. Do you see the Trinitarian nature of this? That the Father sent the Son who then sends the spirit into our hearts. It's right there in verse six. He sent his spirit into our hearts, sealing that blessing upon us, making it true and real. And thus he cries out and we cry out, Abba, Father. Now we're not used to that word Abba. We're used to it in the Bible, right? Abba is an Aramaic word. Uh, Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. It's a form of Hebrew that's got a little bit of Greek mixed in. It's the best way I can explain it. The scholars here will throw something at me. But let me just explain it that way. Jesus likely spoke Aramaic. He likely spoke Koine Greek. Everyone speaks Koine Greek in that time, in that, in that realm. But that word Abba, when Jesus talked to God in his prayers, he called God the Father Abba, an intimate filial term. And the disciples were blown away by this. And so as the church continued from the time of Jesus' ascension into the future, they called God, they realized we can call him Abba. And notice it's Abba, Father, or Pater, the Greek word, the common word for Father. It's a very intimate expression. We cry out and call him Abba, Father. So Jesus, the Son of God, calls him Abba. And we also are God's sons because of what Jesus did for us. 
His spirit lives within us, and so we get to call him Abba. So let me ask you a question here. Can we ever fully understand this? On this side of heaven, can we really fully understand this? Do we really comprehend how amazing of a treasure this really is? No matter our earthly situation, no matter how much or how little we have, no matter if we are loved or ignored, no matter if we are orphans or if we are outcasts, if we're in Christ, we are sons of God. So think about it. We've been asking for five weeks, who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God right here, right now. I'm looking at 90 or 100 sons of God if you are in Christ. It's right here that I wish I had a screen. The first time in four years since I was called it, I wish I had a screen because I want to put up the mind-blown emoji, right? Because if that's not the expression you're feeling on the inside, let me say it again. No matter from where you came, no, no matter how you feel today, no matter what you're struggling with, those are all true and real realities, right? Those are true. But what transcends that is the truth of God's word, which says you are a son of God. All the spiritual blessings are yours in Christ Jesus. So again, mind blown emoji. But Paul's not done. He's not done blowing our minds yet. There's a future reality. There's a future reality yet to be realized. And that's our third and final point this morning. Future reality, it's summarized for us in verse seven. He says, if you are a son, then you are an heir. If you are a son, then you are an heir. Turn with me over to Romans chapter eight, verses 15 through 17. Paul says almost the same thing in a similar yet more clarifying way. Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him." So you and I, we kind of live in this, uh, I call it a suspended existence, right? We live between the now and the not yet. Maybe you've heard these terms before. I used it a lot when we preached through Revelation and maybe you've read it in other books, but we live in, in this between the now and the not yet. Think about this, the inheritance that is ours now, it's spoken of in the Bible as it belongs to us, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is ours now. Nothing can take it from us, it's ours but do we fully realize that yet? Do we experience that completely yet? We don't. And we won't until we reach heavenly glory. We might be justified and sanctified in God's economy. You see that in Romans 8, 28, right? Speaks of it as it's already done. We're justified, sanctified, and glorified. Well, that's good to know. It's true. It's true in God's eyes. But in the flesh, in the here and the now, do we not struggle with sin and the consequences of sin? 
We may be fully adopted. We're safe and secure in God's love and in his persevering grace. But in the flesh, what do we do? We struggle. We struggle with peace. We struggle with hope. Many of us struggle with the assurance of our salvation. We know that one day we may walk on streets of gold and be clothed in the finest robes of glory. But here, what do we struggle with? All kinds of wants and all kinds of needs. These things are true, not yet, (laughs) but they're still true now. Okay, mind blown emoji again, right? That's the point of this. But we would be foolish to turn our eyes and our hearts away from scripture and scriptural truth because the message of scripture is clear. We are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ and we will one day fully realize every bit of it nothing is gonna be kept from us. Nothing will be taken away from us. We will indeed live and reign with him in heaven. That one gets me every time. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Think about it. that, which we get a taste of here in this life, you're gonna truly enjoy in all of its fullness one day in heaven. So as they say, particularly the children in my house say, the struggle is real, dad. The struggle is real. The struggle to keep our eyes on the inheritance that is ours, the inheritance that, remember Peter, he calls it imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It's a struggle to embrace the secure future that we have in the midst of present suffering. That struggle is real. And if you have a pulse and you're in Christ, you're likely struggling or you have struggled. But the presence of the struggle does not make the future inheritance null and void. Please take note of that. Don't listen to liars and charlatans who will say it's not right to struggle. The Bible sure talks a lot about struggling and perseverance, enduring. The presence of struggling doesn't make the future inheritance null and void. Paul says, you were once slaves, now you're set free as sons of God. That means one day you will finally realize the fullness of your inheritance. It's already yours through Christ. It's sealed by a spirit. It's done. It's done. In Christ, through Christ, for Christ, it's done. It's yours if you are in Christ you believe in him. Go full circle a little bit here. CBS Sports ran an article earlier this year, caught my attention and what led me to remember this little story. The author was looking back on sports memorabilia from the past and he was comparing what it was worth then to what it is now and he also adjusted for inflation and all that. But I was stunned because it was only, and I don't like to admit this, but it was only 24 years ago. Seems like yesterday, but Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball. Remember my friend Phil? He got $3.05 million. Today it's valued at $250,000. Don't get me wrong, that's still a lot of money, right? But in comparison, the guy who bought it still owns it. And he's glad he owns it. But think about how its value has decreased, earthly value. Think about how it's decreased. So the application here is pretty simple. Don't put your hopes and dreams. Don't put your 
value and your identity in the things of this world. The things of this world are passing away. We trivialize the value of things and we don't value them for what they really are. So you can draw all the conclusions you want from how uh, that baseball was valued then and how it's valued now, but don't miss this one simple point. That baseball has no eternal value, but you do. That baseball will one day rot away. People will forget about it, won't even know it existed, won't even care that it existed. But guess what? You matter. You have value. You were made in God's image. You have value. Your inheritance in heaven surely has value as well. So Christians, I want you to listen to me remind you that the father has redeemed you by the precious blood of his only son. And he sealed that redemption on your heart by his Holy Spirit. You've been adopted by him. And listen, there are no earthly illustrations or comparisons that can do that truth any justice. I've heard them all. I don't think any of them come close. Just rest in that. You've been adopted by God. You are his child. All of his promises to you are yes in Jesus Christ. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours in Jesus Christ. You always are and you always will belong unto him. You will never be separated from his love. Never. So when you seek for something to take the place of that truth, when you seek to find your identity in something of this world, you lose sight of and you actually end up trivializing just how much your adoption in God is truly worth. So I want this passage to be a reminder of what we talked about last week. Now remember who you are. But I was thankful for the faithful brother who grabbed me on the way out and said, you know, it's really important who we are. And you're probably gonna say this next week, but let me just say it to you now, Pastor Dan. It's more important whose we are. And that's what I wanna remind you today. You belong to God. You've been adopted by him as his son. The inheritance is yours. Amen and amen.